0: I'm James Bryan Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. Today's thought from above is this. The good life is the obedient life. If you missed the pod episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. That's where the name of the podcast comes from, from Colossians 3, 1 and 2, where Paul encourages us to set our minds on things above. Setting our minds on Good, beautiful, and true thoughts on uplifting, encouraging, life-giving, biblically-based thoughts from above is not easy. And that is why we do this podcast, to provide for you in each episode a thought from above that you can dwell upon so that your heart will be warmed and you will become an epiphany of grace. Here's a fun fact. From the founding of the very first college in the United States in 1633, which was Harvard, from 1633 all the way up until 1865, every college in the United States had at its core curriculum a teaching on what it means to live a good life. The good life then was central to getting a college education. So if you went to college in that time frame, You would be reading the classics. You would be reading the Bible. You'd be reading books that would engage your mind in the subject of what it means to live a good life, what it means to be a good person, what it means to be really well-off, these kinds of deep philosophical questions. But after the Civil War, the universities in the United States changed their structure to fit the German model, actually, which was to stress specific majors. So You went to college and you began studying to become doctor, lawyer, teacher, accountant, whatever it was. And for many of you listening, that's exactly what you did when you went to college. You began choosing a major and then you began studying in that field, moving towards that. But what's fascinating when you think about it is for all of those years, what it meant to be educated was to be well-versed in the subject of what it means to live a good life. So with that in mind as we began looking at our curriculum at Friends University, where I teach, we decided to put a course into the curriculum that is required for all students, and it's called The Good Life. And I am one of the professors that teach in that. In fact, I lecture every Tuesday. Every student has to take it. And I think it's a fascinating subject, and it's definitely one that connects with setting our minds on things above. So what I want to do for three straight podcasts is to delve into the three main areas of what it means to live a good life. Before I launch into that, let me just quote John 10:10. John 10:10 is a famous verse, I bet you've heard this one. I when I quote it, you'll say I've heard that. It's the words of Jesus who said, "I came that they may have life and have it abundantly." Jesus is saying he came that we would have a kind of life, not just biological life, but Zoe life, an abundant kind of life, a life that we were designed for, a flourishing life, a life well-lived, a life that we look back on and say, that was in fact a good life. When I teach this course on the good life, it's broken down into three main parts. And these are the three parts of what a good life consists of. First is life led well. That's the agential side, our choices, our behaviors, our character. And then there's life feeling well. That's the affective side, our emotions and feelings. And then there's life going well, which is the circumstantial side, the things that happen in our life. We want our lives to go well. What I found interesting is when I began teaching the course is that for most of the undergraduates, when you look at these three categories, life led well, life feeling well, life going well, Many of the students would put life going well as the primary foundation of a good life. They would say things like, well, I'm here to am in college so that I can get a degree, so that I can get a job, so that I can make money, so that I can buy a house and a car and have this kind of life and maybe kids. And it's all about the circumstances that's the primary thing. So in, in their minds, that was foundational. The second most important was life feeling well they began to write their papers about, well, I just want to feel better. I don't want to be depressed or have anxiety. I want to feel some joy and peace. So the affective side was very important to them. Of the three, the one that they didn't really connect with is life led well. That is the agential side, our agency, our choices, our behaviors, how we live our lives, that moral framework. And as I began to listen to them and dialogue with them and hear their responses in class, it became clear to me that we are living in a postmodern world. And by postmodern, what I mean is we're living in a post-truth kind of world now. The common cultural narrative is, well, is there really moral truth? Is there really right and wrong? Is there really good and bad? I don't really, how do you know, right? It's this kind of subjectivity that dominates, that's, that's the, the postmodernity that we're living in. And that, that became very clear to me one particular day when I said to the class, here's a question, very basic. Can you live a good life and be a bad person? Can you live a good life but be a bad person? One student raised her hand. She said, well, I think so. As long as you're doing what you know, feels right to you, then I guess, you know, yeah. You might, people might say you're a bad person, but if you're doing what feels right to you, Okay. Anybody else? Young man toward the back raised his hand. He said, Yeah, I mean, I don't I have a problem with your question, Dr. Smith. I'm not really sure I mean, how do you know what's good? I mean, who 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 defines who's a bad person? I mean, do we isn't everything entirely subjective? I said, Okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Young woman in the front row raised her hand very eagerly and said, Well, actually, yeah, I fully believe that you can live a good life and be a bad person, because I have an example. And I said, okay, let's let's hear. She said, well, I have this uncle in Cancun, and he's a bad guy. I mean, everybody knows he's a bad guy. He will not even say he's a bad guy. He cheats in the business world. He rips people off. He has these affairs with various women. He's not faithful to anybody. And he has kind of an alcohol and drug problem. And he's kind of a mess. But you know what? Every time I talk to him, he says he's living his best life. There was this kind of silence over the class when she finished her sentence, because everyone was kind of thinking, hmm, now that you've given us an example, is that really true? Is that really right? Suddenly, what she'd done was given us a concrete living kind of example that we could say, all right, is that right? Is he actually living a good life? Well, as I mentioned, we're living in this world of postmodernism. And that has its a huge, long history, which I could explain beginning in the 18th century when ideas began circulating that we can't really know right and wrong. We can't really know what is true and what is not. Everything began to be deconstructed. And in that world, all you really have is personal desire. That trumps everything. So in many ways, a lot of what the students were saying was just representing The world that they've grown up in. Along with postmodernism is utilitarianism, which is this teaching that, you know, pleasure is good, pain is bad, as long as I'm having more pleasure than pain, then maybe that's fine. And then hedonism, that's a third philosophical position that says, look, really what matters is me. I mean, my my own pleasures matters the most. And the young woman who talked about her uncle would demonstrate that for sure. So all three of the narratives that These three students had to the answer to the question of can you live a good life and be a bad person absolutely comes from a world that they've grown up in. It makes sense. But does it? But does it? Dallas Willard said reality is what you bump up against when you're wrong. When you're wrong about something, reality doesn't bend toward you. If you hold some view that is wrong, you can hold it vehemently and say, I just really believe this. But if it's wrong, reality simply won't bend. A great example of this is President James Garfield, who was assassinated. he had only been president for like 200 days, and he was shot in a train station. And the doctors that immediately attended to him began jamming their hands into the wound, trying to reach in and pull out the bullet, and to no avail. But what ultimately killed James Garfield was not the gunshot. It was the bacteria. It was the infection that happened because the doctors didn't sterilize their hands. Because back then, in the 1860s, they didn't believe in germs. The vast majority of doctors didn't believe in it. They couldn't see it. And this man named James Lister, that's where we get Listerine, Over in Europe, was saying, Hey, folks, these are real. Germs are real. We have to sterilize. If we're going to reach into somebody's body, we have to be sterilized. So here we are historically going, Hey, that guy didn't die because of the gunshot. He died because of germs. Reality is what you bump up against when you're wrong. They were simply wrong, those doctors back then. So if you're wrong about something, it's not going to come out right, even if you really want it to. Because here's the deal. There is a moral framework to reality. There's a moral framework to reality. And it doesn't bend based on our whims or our philosophies. I would say this about the uncle in Cancun. Is he really living a good life? Is he really experiencing true joy, deep contentment, a sense of meaning and worth and value? No, he's not. Bernard of Clairvaux said this, there's no greater misery than false joys. There's no greater misery than false joys. When we think, oh, this is what's really great, and we put all our eggs in that basket, oh, this is what's going to make my life feel good, but it's a false joy. That's actually misery. That's what Bernard of Clairvaux understood. I love the psalm's and I love the very first psalm. Psalm 1 says this Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. Psalm 1, I mean, the Psalms begin with this incredible statement that the happy people, the blessed people, blessed are those who don't follow the advice of the wicked or the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. This is an ancient writing. It was true then, it's true now. If you follow the advice of people who are disobedient to God, if you're taking the same path that the sinners are following, If you're sitting in the same seat next to the person who's really a scoffer, your life will not go well. But blessed are who? Blessed are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They set their minds on things above. They think about God's will, God's way, the way of the kingdom. And people who do that are like what? Psalm 1, verse 3. They're like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. That's what it's like, trees planted by streams of water. I put in two new trees in my backyard last year, and the guys who put them in from this nursery gave me these instructions. They said, here's what you do. You got to set the hose on the tree and run it kind of slow, but you run it for at least an hour, and you'll do this for several days. I thought, wow, that's interesting." that seems like a lot of watering. But what they explained to me is that as the roots are being established, they need that much water. And sure enough, when I followed their advice, again, working with reality, those trees took off this elm tree, this maple tree. Wow. I mean, they are just like it says, they're yielding. Their leaves are not withering. They're growing. They're prospering. That's what it's like when you set your mind on the ways of God. The essential message of Psalm 1 is the good life is founded upon a desire and a decision to walk in God's will and God's way. When we make that decision, unequivocally, when we say, This is the way I'm going, a good life naturally follows. It doesn't mean life's going to be easy or perfect or that everything is going to go our way, but it's essential to the good life. Philip Reef, I love reading his. Philosophical works. But Philip Reeve said the true way to, to joy and happiness is called the VIA, V I A, which is an acronym which stands for vertical in authority. V I A, vertical in authority. What's the vertical? That's God. There has to be someone in authority. See, these students, when they were saying, Oh, you know, I think you can just, I think you can do what you want as long as it feels good to you. There's no vertical in authority. You're in authority. You're the one deciding what's right and wrong, and it's a sure way to end up in misery. But what Philip Reef is saying is when the vertical, when God is the one in authority, VIA, of course, that's Latin for via, the way, that is the way to the good life. And the good life, then, is something that is sustained by our habits. So we begin with the decision, I want to walk in God's will, God's way, and then you shape in that, that kind of life. You live into that kind of life on the basis of your habits. So when I was thinking about what kind of habits would help a person live into this via, this vertical in authority, learning how to live into God's will, God's way, I was thinking about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great Reformation teacher, preacher, writer. We think of Luther about grace, you know, sola gratia. We think about Luther about justification by faith. But Luther actually was a person who really committed to living God's will God's way. And so one day he was at his barber, because Luther had to get his hair cut, and he's had this barber who would ask him a lot of questions. And his barber said, Martin, you know, I don't really know how to pray. I'd, I'd love to learn how to pray better. Can you teach me or help me how to pray? And Luther said, yeah, well, here's something that I do. And he began to teach this barber one of his prayer practices, which is praying through the Ten Commandments. And thankfully, his barber went and wrote down Luther's teachings on prayer. And there's this little booklet about Martin Luther's prayer method, which we have today, which is great. But he used the Ten Commandments as a way to pray. And that seems odd at first, because you go, well, how can the, these commandments become prayers? But this is what Luther did. So let's take the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me. What Luther would do was he would pray and say, all right, Lord, do I have any gods? Is there any lowercase God, G, God? Do I have any idols, anything in my life that I put above you? And would listen to the Spirit. And the Spirit might say, yes, well, there's this and there's that. And he would go through each of the commandments saying, okay, this is the command. How am I living into that? And if the Spirit convicted him or rebuked him or challenged him, he would say, okay, you know, I'm going your will, your way, right? The vertical in authority. And he would begin to shape his life into that. And he used that method. I've used that method. I remember Dallas Willard was the first person who taught me about Luther's prayer practice. And I've used it many, many times through the years. And when I pray through the commandments, sure enough, the Spirit does get me. That wasn't too long ago I was praying through the commandments, and I got to that very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. I said, Spirit, reveal to me if there's anything that I've put higher than you. Is there anything that I'm maybe investing too much in that maybe is more important than you? And the Spirit went, tennis. <laughs> I just went, what? And then I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I love tennis. Some of you may know I, I play a lot of tennis. It's It's just a sport I've loved my whole life, but I'm really I'm playing a lot of tennis these days, I'm more than I've ever played before. And I'm thinking about tennis, I'm taking lessons, I'm playing with groups, I'm playing on a tennis team. And I thought, okay, okay, that's a good rebuke there, Lord. I probably need to consider whether or not I put that above God. And that's a good example of that. But here's the thing, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you've probably heard me say so many times, God loves you as you are. That is absolutely true. God loves you as you are, not as you should be. God loves you exactly where you are right now. God loves you as you are. But God does not leave us where we are. He always wants us to grow into wholeness, and a part of that is how we live our lives. It's an invitation into a life of freedom and wholeness. Sarah Bessie wrote an article that I was really challenged by, and she writes these words. Obeying God's way is never about deprivation. It's about becoming who we were meant to be all along. In the old days, they used to call this holiness or sanctification. Both words we don't hear much because they've lost some meaning by their misuse, perhaps. I think that conviction has gotten a bit of a bad rap in the church today, Sarah says. It's understandable. We have an overcorrection to a lot of the legalism and boundary marker Christianity that damaged so many. Let me pause there for a second. I think she's spot on. In many ways, a lot of us have reacted to the legalism that we grew up in. There was all these rules and laws, and this, it seems stifling. But what she's saying is, perhaps now we have an overcorrection to the legalism. We have an overcorrection. We've pushed it back too far. She goes on to say, But in our steering away from legalism, I wonder if we left the road to holiness or began to forget that God also cares about what we do and how we do it and why. Conviction is less about condemnation than it is about invitation. Oh, that's a good one. I gotta read that sentence again. Conviction is less about condemnation than it is about invitation. It's an invitation into freedom. It's an invitation into wholeness. What a great quote. That's really what it is. What was fascinating about that moment when the student talked about her uncle in Cancun is that it actually allowed students to really begin to process and think. Okay, she's given us a picture of a person who's living a bad life in so many ways in their business life, in their relational life, even in their physical life, how they're harming themselves. Can you possibly imagine that that's really a good life? And what was great about it is that in our sections, when the students are broken down into smaller groups to discuss the lectures and the the readings, many of them said, yeah, I used to kind of think that way, but boy, after hearing her say that, it's made me question the truth of that, which is the beautiful part of education. I mean, that's what we do. That's why we do what we do in education. Let's let people think, because the more you think about these things, if you can really think about your thinking, as Dallas would say. Think about your thinking. When we do that, we begin to process and see, ah, maybe I was wrong about something. The foundation of the good life is a life led well, and a life led well is a life of obedience. Obedience leads to freedom and wholeness. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind, your answer will be, things above.